What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Kimberly Jones, the author and activist on the history, present and future of civil rights in the US. The murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis in 2020 provoked a moment of cultural reckoning in the US and a wave of outrage across the globe. Amid the scenes of protest captured on camera throughout the country, the words of author and activist Kimberly Jones, filmed on the streets of Atlanta, cut through. Her seven-minute distillation of the past 450 years of social and economic oppression of black communities in the US likened to the situation to permanently rate game of monopoly, one being played out across the centuries. In the video, Kimberly repeatedly asks viewers, how can we win? The clip went viral, being shared over two million times and found support from cultural figures ranging from Oprah to Trevor Noah and LeBron James. Now Kimberly has expanded on the ideas in that speech with a new book outlining how some of those economic and social imbalances found in the rigged system can be redressed. How We Can Win is the book's name. Our host today is the broadcaster, best-selling author and financial educator, Alvin Hall. You can also check out Alvin's own recent podcast, Driving the Green Book, a road journey through the history of the struggle for civil rights in the US. Here's Alvin with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Kimberly. It's nice to meet you. Oh, it's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me on. I have read your book twice. Oh my you goodness. You have occupied. Yes, I was really intrigued by both the video, the passion that you showed, and then I was very curious how you were going to translate all of that into this book. How can we win? And it's a question I started asking myself shortly after I graduated from college in the mid-70s, when I went out into the world and I started encountering the first blush of structural racism. So I'm very much on that same page with you and what you recognize. But first, tell us about how the video happened. Could you summarize that? You know, it it was an interesting day because David Jones, who filmed the video, he had been down during the protest for, for like a week filming. And I had also been down at the protest, but I had been protesting. And so we know each, he and I know each other from um, the film world. And so he called me that day and I was actually supposed to be headed to a par- to a party for my friend Frank. Um, Frank has now since forgiven me for not coming to his party. Um, I was supposed to be headed to my friend Frank's party and... I he said, Kim, can you please come do some man on the street for me? This was right after um, the the major civil unrest that happened in Atlanta that that, you know, left the city with a lot of property damage. And he said, I'm down here interviewing people who are cleaning up, who are preparing for more protests that are coming later. And I, I'm terrible at men in the street and you or men on the street and you're great at it. Can you come do it? And I was like, sure, sure, sure. So me and my, my mom, my, my best friend, Brandy, who the book is dedicated to, uh, she, I called her and I said, Hey, David wants us to come do this thing. And so in true Brandy fashion, my friend is a, she's an amazing person. She shows up and she has these matching George Floyd t-shirts for us. And she's like, we're going to wear are these and I'm like okay so we put on these 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 uh George Floyd t-shirts and we go down there and I'm doing man on the street and I'm interviewing 
upwardly mobile African-American people who are downtown cleaning up in a community in which they do not live. They've paid for their own cleaning goods, things to get the graffiti off the wall. They've gotten boards, cleaning supplies, all these things. And as I interviewed each of them, I began to recognize the, um, the disconnect between marginalized black people and these upwardly mobile, um, financially stable, upper middle class black people who were downtown. And the, the universal thing that they kept saying to me is that the reason why they were downtown cleaning up and doing this is because they were worried about how the rioting and the looting were gonna affect the narrative. And I thought to myself, that's the least thing that we should be worried about right now. And so when I, in my mind, again, like like we said, you know, thoughts get compounded. I'm thinking about six months prior to that, where I put together a community cleanup in the neighborhood of Bankhead and, and essentially no one showed up. Two or three people showed up. We were able to get a little bit, you know, you know, we were able to get a little bit of work done. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, when I made a call to action, for people to clean up our community because the viewpoint of environment affects a person's self-esteem and all these things. I couldn't get anyone to show up. But now here we have all of these upwardly mobile black people downtown cleaning up because they're concerned about the white gaze and how it's going to affect the narrative of the movement. And I'm like, did y'all miss when King said that riots are the language of the unheard? And so I was upset by that. And I kind of started talking about it in a very like kind of like haphazard way. And, and I, I said maybe like three or four things and David said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me grab my camera. Now this is in the midst of the cleanup. There was a, a beautiful young sister downtown doing a floor, a flower memorial on the, on the corner dedicated to all the people who had lost their lives to police brutality. So set against these uh, bourgeois black people doing this cleanup, we have this marginalized sister doing this memorial on in, in, the, in my same view eyeline and so in a way i was talking to her i was trying to i was trying to stand in solidarity with her i was trying to stand um in solidarity i'm a you know i'm a gen xer i was trying to stand in solidarity with the millennials and the zers who were leading the movement and that's why the impact of us communicating with elders and us having these conversations with people and us implanting things in children is important because those first four or five lines, which are um, reconstructed and borrowed from Reverend Willie T. Barrow, man, they, it's, you know, she has since passed away. I feel like in a way she was with me. Oh, she was. I can tell you when you started talking, as they say in the church, the spirit was in you. You could not stop you. The motion was just there. And as the words flowed, it was as if they were appearing right in front of your eyes and coming out of your mouth instantaneously. Because somewhere in the past, elders had given you all of the words, all of the perspectives, all of the wisdom that you that came out of you in that moment. You couldn't have planned that moment at all. No, and it would not have had the same passion or the same just emotional pow when you heard it. It wouldn't have had it. You come originally from Chicago, correct? Correct, yes. But I live in Atlanta now, but I've, I was born and raised in Chicago, but I, I, I feel like they're equally my home because I've now lived in each place the same amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the bits of wisdom you pass on in the book is that you have to learn from your elders. You had great parents and great people in the community where you were raised. Tell me about, let's start with your mother. <laughs> my mother, oh my God, it's so hard for me to talk about my mother, but I love to talk about my mother. My mother uh, just just recently passed in July. That's what makes it hard to talk let's about Let's say her, her name. Her name is Lula Jones, my mother, Lula Jones. And so, uh, but my mother was a phenomenal woman. She was an absolutely phenomenal woman. She was highly intelligent, um, graduated from high school two years early, integrated her high school in all girls Catholic school, and then went on to college and fell in love with my dad and got married really young and had to join the workforce. She's an interesting woman. Her first job when she she dropped out of college was she worked for Hugh Hefner. 
And then, <laughs> yes, she works for if she works for Hugh Hefner at the original Playboy, uh, at the original Playboy Mansion in Chicago, um, and she hated that job, and so she got a hookup from someone to um, work at the Sears Tower before they even, I mean, well, actually to work for Sears Corporate before they even built the Sears Tower. Um, actually, my next book, which is called The Tower, is is her biography that she and I were working on before she passed away, but. Um, to cut to the chase, what my mother ended up doing was being a pioneer in AI. Um, she programmed robots that delivered the mail throughout the Sears Tower in 1976. Yes, in 76. Yeah, she programmed robots that delivered the mail throughout the Sears Tower. Um, and she went on to do many other phenomenal things. She also was an activist and community advocate. Um, but the book is, that I'm writing about her next is centered around that time. But the joke that I tell people about my mother, because I, I grew up in a Brady Bunch family. My, my parents divorced when I was two. My mother remarried when I was four to my stepdad, who was a phenomenal stepdad. He was widowed. He had three kids. My mom had four kids. So we became the Black Brady Bunch, the seven of us. I mean, you have seven kids, you have to keep them busy, especially on the south side of Chicago, even though we grew up in a working class neighborhood, but we were surrounded by the hoods and we were definitely impacted um, by the trauma of the crack cocaine entrance into the black community in the early 80s. And so we called my mother to sign up lady. Because any after school program, any gifted program, any any anything from DuSable Museum to the library, if there was something going on, my mother would be like, sign my kids up. What? You're teaching tap dancing classes on Fridays at the community center? My kids want to go. Oh, they have, they're having a cheerleading squad for the Alderman. My daughters want to participate. So we're like, my mother was just this wealth of resource and she made sure that we knew that there was more in the world than what was in our community. And keeping you busy was also a way of helping helping you learn how to learn on your own and learn from other people because you had some phenomenal women in your life. The Reverend Willie Barrow, uh, Barrow is just a fantastic story. Please tell me about her, please. So Reverend Willie Barrow for many years led Rainbow Coalition Operation Push. And she was very interested in, and she really believed in Frederick Douglass's philosophy that you couldn't always fix broken men, but you could definitely raise better children. And so she, she had after school programs and all of this. And it, it's interesting because she just was this master orator. Even when she wrote, when I read articles that she wrote, we had a black newspaper in Chicago, The Defender. Even when she wrote articles articles in The Defender, she was just a master of words and a master of the English language and how she put things together. And I admired that so much about her. And I went throughout my entire academic career undiagnosed with ADHD. And I got blessed um, that for seventh and eighth grade, I had this, again, another phenomenal black woman, this teacher, Mrs. Carolyn Lumpkin, who, although she may not have been aware of a need for diagnosis, she just felt like this kid needs a different way of learning. So she would do things like she knew that I was like, you know, my mother had positioned me to be resourceful. And like you said, to learn on my own. And I spent many countless hours at the library. And so when I would get restless, basically ADHD restless without a name, she would she would just look at me and say, Kimberly, do you have a lesson you want to teach today? And she would give me the floor for 30 minutes and let me teach class. And I would teach people about Medgar Evers and Percy Julian and, you know, Gaspar Younger and all of these people. And so when she realized that the way in which I taught, she thought this kid is a great orator. And so she put me in oratory competitions and I was winning. But the one piece that she gave me, she gave me a piece uh, written in the Defender by Reverend Willie T. Barrow. And I thought, what a, f in, even in my 13 year old mind, I was like, what a crazy connection that I have this one inspirational lady and this other, and this one doesn't even know my relationship to this one and gives me her words to speak. And so that's the first time I came in first place at an oratory competition. And I still remember it to this day. And I'll tell you just a little piece of it because it's significant. And the beginning of it was, and I've carried this message, this speech with me for over 30 years, was we must never forget 
that economics is the reason the African were brought to America. We did not arrive on America's shores like other immigrants looking for freedom and the land of opportunity. The African came to do work. We came to do the work that others could or would not do. We came and made others rich. The African was the backbone of the agricultural economy in the South and the textile industry in the North. Sound familiar? Yes, it's in your speech on the streets of Atlanta. And when you delivered those words, I had to stop the video and replay it because it was so full of truth. The type of truth that until you hear it in those words said with your passion, it just doesn't quite penetrate. And when it does, and when you said it, it just went straight through me. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And you had a lady in your community who was turbo woke, as you call her in the book. <laughs> you must be talking about Miss Deborah. Miss <laughs> Deborah, exactly. Listen, I went home. I went home about a year ago and I took my I took my boyfriend and my son to my old neighborhood so that they because I have a 15 year old son who is brilliant. My child is so brilliant. I have 15 year old son and my boyfriend and I and I took them to my old uh, neighborhood because I wanted them to see where I grew up. And Miss Deborah's son was outside um, shoveling snow at her house. And I and I was like, Carl, are your parents still live here? And he's like, yeah, my mom and dad still live here. And so I knocked on the door and she came out. And even in just 20 minutes of standing on that porch with her, I, when we got in the car, I told my boyfriend and my son, I said, you see? You see what I was saying about Miss Deborah? She was still educating and she would play. She had these records that she would play for me and she would play. Um, she would play records for me about a move and she would play records for me from she would play. She would play like old school comedians, but old school comedians who would work. So she who were woke. So she'd play like, you know, I'm like 10 years old and she's playing me like Paul Mooney and, you know, <laughs> Dick Gregory. <laughs> Dick Gregory. And like people like that. Um, and so, you know, it's just like, it's funny because I, I, I think about it now and I think, there, you know, people talk about alignment. I'm like, oh, God has been preparing me for this moment my whole life. Indeed. It certainly seems that way. And I love in the book when you talk about the importance of learning from elders. When I did my podcast, Driving the Green Book, we got all of these unexpected stories during the drive from Detroit to Chicago. And we did a specific episode in which we let the elders speak to pass on their wisdom. And clearly the people met you, saw you, that you were receptive to it and passed on all of this to you. And you're now passing it on to other people. Kimberly, in reading your book, you've done a lot of research and a lot of thinking about the history of black businesses and economics. I work on Wall Street where I've worked for over 30 years and I had never heard of Tulsa until probably 20 years ago when a student asked me about it. And at that point I had been on Wall Street for 10 years and had had nothing about it. And then that opened the floodgates to all of this other knowledge about black businesses that have been built in America, thriving, independent, and then destroyed. At the end of your book, you have a list of all those places that have disappeared. And I read that very slowly and thought about it. But you see this in a very broad way. This is a repeated problem in America. It is a repeated problem in America. When you think about the economics of how black communities have been withheld, it's so multi, it's so multi-layered, right? So the reason why I say what we need is Reconstruction 2.0 is because Reconstruction was actually working. Reconstruction was working until it was dismantled. Um, when Lincoln was still in office, it was working. And then when he was murdered and Johnson took over, he dismantled everything that was working. General Oliver Howard, whom the HBCU in D.C. Howard University is named after was running the Freedmen's Bureau. The amount of money they gave him to run the Freedmen's Bureau, which was supposed to be a bureau similar to the Bureau of Indian Affairs that we have here for Native people, which is also not working in the capacity it should be. It needs improvements and changes. Um, but it was supposed to be a similar thing in that it would tackle the needs of these newly freed people. Um, and so they, the amount of money they gave him to run the bureau was the amount of money they spent in a week 
during the Civil War. So basically they gave him no money. You know what I mean? And so what he did have access to was 850,000 acres of land that he could disseminate that was given to him that was won in the war, if you will. And so people always say, well, we didn't get our 40 acres of a mule. Well, I wish that was true. That would be less devastating. We actually did begin to get our 40 acres. And that's what General Oliver Howard was doing, was giving out um, was giving out 40 acres of land to newly freed people. And so at the time, black people didn't have entree into the big money makers, which were cotton and tobacco. But what they could get that was really inexpensive was watermelon seeds. And so um, this is, again, now the root of the derogatory uh, connection between black people and watermelon. So black people were able to get watermelon seeds, utilize that 40 acres. And if he had a mule, he'd give them a mule um, to tend to their land. And it was extremely successful. You have to keep in mind, formerly enslaved people are coming out with the highest level of skill set. These are the blacksmiths, the carpenters, the nannies, the, you know, you know, they've been doing all of the work on these plantations. So you have communities that are filled with people that have every skill you need in order to run a thriving community. And then you have us really controlling the entirety of an industry of watermelon growth. We had begun to thrive. We had actually begun to thrive. And then Lincoln was shot. Um, Johnson, who felt like it wasn't black people, but that it was poor whites, which is what he had been, who were under the foot of the rich planter class. Uh, he he enjoyed making the planter class come to him and beg for pardons to get back into the union. And what he gave them as a gift when they did that was to take was to give them 40 acres. Now, where do we think he's going to get this 40 acres from? He's taking it from these thriving black farmers who have built successful businesses, this community who has cornered a market. So that was one instance. Another economic incident is the Freedmen's Bank. The Freedmen's Bank was a bank that was put in place that would allow black people to bank with them. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these people who were being successful during Reconstruction, building towns like Tulsa and Rosewood and Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, Seneca Village, which was Seneca Village was actually a mix of of, of black people and 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 immigrants who uh, were suffering, you know, uh, bad views of themselves, like the Irish and Italian and. And things like that, they could bank with Freeman's Bank. Well, Freeman's Bank didn't have the guidelines that other banks had, and they collapsed. And that bank was being led by racist white men who then collapsed that bank to the tune of what will be the equivalent now of about $66 million. And those same men who collapsed that bank due to bad investments, and, and um, keep in mind, out of hundreds of thousands of Black people who, um, or thousands of thousands of black people who had invested in that bank, only only dozens actually got their money back. Everyone else, their money was just lost. But those men who were over that bank mysteriously had money to invest in their new American technology, which was the railroad. And so, you know, and and, and the list goes on. People talk about handouts in America and, and black people with reparations um, wanting an economic handout. Well, between the 1920s and the 1960s, the U.S. government underwrote $200 billion in home lending to build the white American suburb and actually had, you can actually, I have copies. I've, I went and purchased them so I could have show proof to people would actually put language in mortgage just saying you couldn't resell those homes to black people. Home ownership during that period built the white middle class. 98% of that lending went to white America. 2% went to everybody else. So I'm not just saying 2% went to black people. I'm saying 2% went to everybody else. Black, Latin, Asian, Native, Indian. 2% went to everybody else. It, it, was, the, it was the biggest welfare system Ever. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you talk about the economics of black people and why we now in a city like Atlanta, which is a thriving black city, a metropolis with a majority black people, but the median income for $17,000, the median income is $17,000 for black families and the median income for white families, $170,000. You have to talk about the impact of generational economic devastation. You have to look at things like Brooks Brothers, who has is a family that has generational wealth, who made their 
their original money dressing slaves. That whole thing of slaves standing on 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 the on the selling block in tattered clothes, that's Hollywood for entertainment. You dressed your slaves to the nine to sell them. You showed off your wealth to your white counterparts by having the most well-dressed enslaved people in the world. Well, who sold those clothes to dress those enslaved people? Brooks Brothers. I know. Every time I walk past the shop, I know it's literally five blocks from where I live on Madison Avenue. And I think about that now every day I walk past that shop. And you look at all the towns that were destroyed. You know, you look at Rosewood, you look at Tulsa, you look at Wilmington. And these are trends that continue in America in different ways. My belief is that this violence just morphs into more subtle forms. That every generation, something like that happens and it morphs into most subtle forms. And in a way, Gentrification is the continuation of that. When one neighborhood that becomes too expensive for white people to move into, they then start to look at the nice, formerly black neighborhoods to move into. And that then makes those neighborhoods too expensive and black people move to another area. And it is so also you... systemic racism that allows gentrification to ha happen and not just in the ways in which people think about it. Because when you look at what's happening in these marginalized Neighborhoods. First of all, I was on a call with a bunch of British MPs and they gave me this language. They said to me in shock and awe when I explained to them that how we educate our children is based on um, it's based on property tax, which basically means that if you live in a poor neighborhood, you get a poor education and you have no resource. And if you live in a rich neighborhood, you get to, you get lots of money based on that property tax and you get a great education. So we are continuing an education gap just in that alone. So then also when you look at the fact that in marginalized communities, the entirety of what is happening um, that, that there has been proven facts that black homes are appraised lower than white homes in similar neighborhoods with similar, similar square footage and all of that. <laughs> then, then so what happens is you have less tax value in these communities, which means you have less services and resources in this community, which means when I lived in Buckhead, I saw street sweepers all the time. When I lived in Bankhead, I did not. It doesn't mean that people in poor neighborhoods just are throwing trash on the ground and don't care and people in wealthier neighborhoods are not. What it means is in a wealthier neighborhood, someone's cleaning it up. And in a poor neighborhood, someone's not. So then now you see the trash that is there due to the lack of resource and service to this community. And then what that does is allow them to have an excuse to then lower the property value. In I mean, it's like... When people, when people don't realize what we're talking about is systemic, it's a, it's a, it's systemic. It's a it web. Is. It is an, a web and it's a web that not only is so tightly in place and invisible to most people, but the narrative used to describe the web by people in charge is so tightly controlled. So if you start talking about it, sometimes people will say, well, that's not possibly true. I've never seen that. Well, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist. And that's been the most amazing part of this revelation for me, to talk to people. When you say that these things have happened, redlining has happened, uh, the high insurance rates in a black neighborhood, the higher mortgage rates, and they just can't believe that these things are happening. And then when you show evidence of it, it's also dismissed because it goes against the pervasive narrative. When did you come into your own, you feel? I really feel like the thing that brought me, um, I feel like there were two significant moments, right? Um, that brought me into my own. The first was I met a dear friend of mine who's like my sister, um, Yanajaha Lone Wolf, um, who is the, she, she calls herself a movement baby. She is the descendant of warriors. Her mother, Winetta Lone Wolf, was very, um, cause Yanajaha is half black and half Lakota native. And so her mother was a leader, um, in the indigenous, um, movement, but also very, very, 
very heavily involved um, in the black community. Her mother was the publicist for years for Muhammad Ali. Um, she was, she, a lot of people don't know this. Her mother was responsible for the Thriller in Manila and the Rumble in the Jungle. She put those together. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're working on a project about Ms. Lone Wolf too. But, um, <laughs> and, and so when I met Yanajaha and she was this fierce warrior, it was shortly after this photo that went viral of her um, during Standing Rock, where she's standing with her arms spread in front of a bulldozer. And so she works on both sides. She works for both the indigenous, like her mother, she works for both the indigenous community and she works heavily with the black community. And so I met her during a Stop the Violence weekend here in Atlanta. Um, we met through a mutual friend. At the time, I was running a children's bookstore. And then in my spare time, a dear friend of mine was running for city council when I was his campaign manager. And so I brought him down to the march because I thought it would be good because he's he's very union oriented. He actually um, is the, one of the presidents of the local chapter of the Poor People's Movement. And so he and I went down to this march and I marched alongside Monteria Robinson. Monteria Robinson is the mother of Jamarian Robinson. And... I feel like Jam's case is one of those cases that never got attention. But to me, his mother always says this, and I agree with her. It's probably the most hein heinous uh, police brutality case in the history. They fired 110 rounds at this baby. He had 76 entry and exit wounds on his body. He had burns on his body consistent with flashbang grenades. And after they realized he was the wrong person, they left his body lying there for eight hours unattended to. And so when I got to the march, his mother had had these photos blown, massive photos blown up of his autopsy photos. And so I walked miles side by side with his mother carrying one of his autopsy photos. And that's the moment where I realized, and this was five years ago. And this is the, that's the moment where I realized that just showing up at the periodic um, protest, um, posting on my Instagram was not enough. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Yes, you had to actually get there and be physically present and absolutely be physically present. Talking to Jamarian's mother, what evidence of trauma did you see in her that you tried to help her with? Well, you know, Monteria is such a lion. I mean, she too, she also is a great orator. I tell people all the time when we're on the front lines, I'm like, look, don't book me to go after uh, Monty. I want to speak before her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people say that they say that about me, but I say that about her. I'm like, look, I want to go before Monty because when that fire comes, I can't follow it. Um, you know, it's interesting because she's doing it now. I've seen her do it in the in the last year, especially because now finally, after five years of us fighting, an indictment has come down on the officers um, that murdered her son. I, I just, I wanted her to get back to also just being human. Because I feel like a lot of times, the divine feminine of African-American women, if however they choose to live in it is not honored. And that there is this idea 
this trope that I'm so glad I'm seeing it a lot in the Zers and, and in the younger millennials that they're pushing it back against this trope that the strong black woman is the only mode in which we get to be in, which means we do have higher rates of heart attack, hypertension, things that are affected by stress. And also that it, there, 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 there's this, listen, I do the work that I do because I'm passionate about it. I love it, but it's not required for everybody to do it. Some of the examples we just need set for little brown girls around the world is just a woman gleefully living in her joy and yes. being present and being happy and being the kind of person who's excited about making bows on birthday gifts. And so we are not a monolith. And so I felt like um, just in work, there were times when I could just see the wearing on her from this fight. But she definitely has in the last two years, because all of us will be on her like, Monty, please take a break. And she's like, I can't take a break until I get justice for my baby. And she was so selfless that for her, it wasn't just about getting justice for her baby. She founded an organization trying to get justice for all mothers in Georgia who had, ex who at one time that chapter had close to 100 members who had experienced what she was experiencing. So she was fighting for her baby. She's fighting for these other hundred women. But now she's been taking vacations and, uh, you know, her and her husband have 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 had chance to, like, spend more time with each other and focus on their their child that's still here. And not that she ever lost focus, but it's just like it's just joyful for me to get her to just, just getting to watch her just be. Exactly. Yeah, and your point that not everybody has to be involved in the movement. Not everybody has to be a star or pushing forward. I have a friend in Pittsburgh, and I remember walking through um, Madison Square Park with her one day, and she said, you know, sometimes, Alvin, I think of my life in a very small way, but I recognize that my power is that I can change people one person at a time through their interaction with me. And I think that's powerful. I thought about that as I read your book, that not everybody needs to be the big personality. Sometimes you make the change through example, by being good to your family or changing one person at a time as you meet them. Yes, I tell people all the time, people ask me, what are my aspirations? They know, you know, I'm an author. They know that I am, you know, a content creator and an activist and all these things. And they ask me, what are my aspirations? And I think that they think that I'm going to say I want an an, an image award and I want to be a New York Times bestseller and the Nobel Peace Prize and all these things. And I tell them the greatest thing that I'm ever going to be at any point in this life is the moment I become a big mama, a Gigi, <laughs> a TD, any yep. of those things. Because when I think about my, my grandmare, my grandmother, my granny, my great aunts, my mom's first cousins who due to, uh, proper black training. I referred to them as auntie, even though they were my mom's, you know, aunts and my, and my uncles and my, yeah. my granddads and all those people, man, those people inspired me and, and gave me self-worth in a way that I could never thank them for. And just even the, their jokes and the sayings and the, and the lessons on food and the things they taught me about how to grow my own food and all that has so, it's so rich. And I'm so grateful that I was a kid who grew up around a lot of old people. And so it's like, if I'm going to be anything great in this world, it's when I become that. It's when my nieces and nephews and my grandkids and the neighbor's kids and some kid like me and Miss Deborah that lives on my block, when I have impact on their life, then I will have achieved greatness. When you talk about yourself as an old black lady with your mason jar of iced tea in your <laughs> flowered house dress sitting in the swing on the back porch. <laughs> I love that scene because that was so many people I know in my life growing up in this small town in northern Florida. Yeah. Another aspect of your book that really touched me and made me stop and reread the book again was your focus on mental health. I so remember when I graduated from college and I went to work in Florida, and as I discovered the structural racism I was facing, the difficulties in getting an apartment, the difficulties in managing my credit rating, all of that, I became an angry black man. Yeah. I wasn't just a little angry, I was deeply angry, but I was verbally a vicious man. 
And I remember when a friend Ted said to me, Alvin, I think you need help. Because it hadn't become self-destructive, but it could. And I remember going to therapy. I went to therapy for five years. For five years, because I had to find some place for what I thought was the injustice. And I remember to this day what the therapist said to me, Kimberly, one day. It said, what made you think that by playing by the rules, the world would automatically give you a living? I have never forgotten that. And so reading your book, talking about the importance of going to a therapist or a friend and talking about your problems can give you a new perspective. And I know that it helped me. So I love that part of your book. It's important. It's super important. You know, I'm not a neurotypical person. I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD. I live with anxiety. I live with PTSD. And so I too, I am in therapy all the time. You know, I tell people all the time, you cannot expect well answers from sick people. True. And so I think that it's very significant, especially for me being someone um, who has been positioned to be in leadership, I have to offer people my best self. And if my mental health is not on track, then how can I do that? And if I'm not self-aware about the need to track my mental health and stay on top of it, then I'm not. And guess what? When I, you know, my first two novels, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight and Why We Fly are young adult novels. They're written for teenagers. One of I, my co I have a co-author, Geely, and I remember the first time that we were at a school, we were at a school in D.C., and I shared with the class um, that I had ADHD. When we uh, we worked, we worked with an amazing organization called um, One Book that gives, it takes us to Title I schools and then gives all the kids that we see a free copy of the book. And I remember when kids were lining up and I was signing, Geely and I, in our presentation, we teach critical race theory and we talk about the book and we talk about ourselves. And um, I remember I was signing to this kid and he slid me his book, but he had a, a, a ripped up piece of notebook paper on top of the book that says, I have ADHD and seeing you today. I'm about to cry. Just saying it again. He said, seeing you today made me believe that I could be something great. Fantastic, isn't it? You are such an inspiration. That's one of the things I love about the book. You tell the truth. You give of yourself in the book in a way that's really touching and makes people feel that they can do it, especially when you lay out your nine uh, strategies for making your life better. You know, I, I reread those many times and <laughs> because they're true. You have to take care of your career. You have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your family. You have to take care of the money and the emotions behind the money. All of those things that enable us to become people who can see the world realistically and also see ways through the problems that we encounter as black and brown people going through the world. But let's look at the title of your book, How Can We Win? When you look at that video and you see yourself saying those words, where did that come from in you? Had that been sitting there for years? Yeah, I think a lot of it had been sitting there for years. And I think that's why that video was so explosive, um, because it's the same thing like you were talking about when you said you had to go to therapy, because it's like it's compounded. Right. So it's like compounded. And so, you know, me being what I think, you know, pretty intelligent person or, you know, smart person, <laughs> when I think about the struggle that I went through and how. Although I grew up in a two-parent home, working-class family, and my 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 co-parent and I um, co-parent very well. Um, we I I, t I don't know I I talk about that a lot. How well my my son's father and I co-parent. My son's father also incredibly smart man, genius level smart. And I thought about the early years of us raising our son and how much we struggled. And and we're not talking about two people who don't want to work. We're not talking about two people who are not educated. We are not talking about two people who didn't care, who didn't have people around us the entirety of our lives who loved us, but we struggled economically. And we lived in a world where our son was definitely more economically marginalized than 
than what he and I had grown up with. And so when I think about that, I'm like, if, if, if my child has two working parents who are relatively smart, who was, who grew up surrounded by love and we're struggling. We still live in a rough neighborhood. We still get frustrated when he comes home at the last minute with the field trip because we don't have the money for the field trip. You know what I mean? And now I got to call my sister and borrow money so that he can go on the field trip. So he's not the kid that's looking like he's left out and that kind of thing. I thought, man, if we're this smart and we're struggling, what about people who are not getting a proper education? What about single moms or single dads who don't have a great co-parent? What about people who grew up in foster care who experienced abuse more than they experienced love? If we are struggling, and I'm looking around at my white counterparts, and then I discovered that the median income here in my city in Atlanta for black families is $17,000, but the median income for a white family is $170,000. How can we win? There's got to be a fix in the game somewhere. So even though theoretically we all know there's a fix in the game, I started looking for concrete evidence like what is the fix? Because this is not the, the as the kids say nowadays, the math ain't mathing. Yeah. <laughs> but that brings me to two questions. This has been going on for so long. Rodney King's beating occurred about the time when I was your age. I'm almost 70 years old now. And I think, how much progress have we made since the Rodney King beating? Since that was on news. And then you jump Floyd to George Floyd. And you just, you just have to stop and wonder, do you feel that the previous generation may have let black people in America down in some way? Or were the economics just so rigged that, that the progress we should have made since Rodney King didn't occur? I think that the issue is we are all under the impression that we grow up, right? And we don't. We're all adult babies. We're all, we all still carry a lot of our childlike sentiments just in adult bodies with adult responsibilities. And, wh and what I mean by that is when you're five years old, and you're at grandma's house and you, you, you're, all the cousins come over, right? But you're the kid, although there's some marginalization there because you have to live with grandma. But, um, and so you know that, right? You know that you don't have the things that these other people have because you have to live with grandma, but you're in a privileged position because you live with grandma. Now everybody's at grandma's house. The room is yours. The toys are yours. The snacks are yours. You do not want to be usurped at that, in that space, you, there's nothing anyone's going to say, even the cool cousin who's trying to convince you of the right thing to do, you still feel like, Hey, y'all can have these, these Cheetos. And that is it because I, I, the Doritos are mine. And when y'all all leave here, there's 12 of y'all, y'all not going to eat the 12 mini bags of Doritos that are here and me and Nana's house. And it's just like this notion that we expect people who have the privilege, but who are aware of our beauty and the way in which we affect the etymology of the language and the way we have single-handedly created every, every major form of music um, that has gone out of these shores in the way in which despite all the oppression that we have, we are still, if you give us entree into something, we're still leaders in sports. We're still leaders in entertainment. We're, we're leaders in philosophy and all these things. So to think that the person can watch this beautiful peacock that will be a rose growing in concrete and think I'm going to allow them entree to the, to the pantry. It doesn't work. So what do you do? You have to continue to be okay with phenomenon that keep those people at bay. To me, one of the most devastating things that happened to the black uh, community was the, the crack cocaine epidemic. But it did not have the same response in which the op opioid ec epidemic has happened. Why? Because it, again, it is affecting that beautiful peacock that we can't allow to have Andre into the cabinet, into the pantry. A beautiful example. Do you feel that going forward, there is something that we can do to make it happen faster? 
so that people don't continue to get frustrated, so that things don't seem to repeat. The more things change, the more they remain the same. I'm sure it's a phrase that goes through many people's mind when they read about another black person getting shot, uh, getting uh, roughed up by the police, another black family going to a funeral. Yeah. I think that the main thing that we have to do is we have to we have to groom grassroots activists, grassroots advocates um, to take political seats. People who are not going to be bought and paid for by their endorsements. Um, That's another thing we need to change in the way in which funds are raised for campaigns because I mean I'm not even making an excuse for them. You'd back somebody in a in a corner if their opponent has raised a million dollars and they've raised five thousand dollars. Now they have to figure out how to get money from donors. And now these donors feel like they owe them a favor. So I take this money from a developer because I want to do the right thing. And even though I'm saying I don't want gentrification in my community, well this one developer did give me half a million dollars, so I'm just gonna let them in the door and then hope that they do the right thing and ask them to make 15 houses that are low income, but they're still there. And then I'm out of my seat and they grow out further. You know what I mean? So one thing yes. is we have to change the way in which politicians get money for their campaigns, how much money they can take, who they can take money from, and that kind of thing. That's one. I think the other thing is we have to recognize that our power is not federal, that it's local. I I tell people all the time here in Atlanta, if you stand on the corner of Moreland and Memorial, if you stand on one side of that street, you're in Fulton County. If you stand on the other side of that street, you're in DeKalb County. So a user's amount of marijuana on Fulton gets you a $50 citation. A user's amount of marijuana in DeKalb takes you to jail. And and so 10 steps. You take 10 steps difference and it's the difference between a citation and a sentence. And so we have to understand that our power lies. We want to change it. We got to change it community by community, municipality by municipality, because that's where we actually have power. I talk to the commissioners. I talk to the city council people here. I talk to the mayor here. You know, I mean, even me and Kemp, we've had our here in Georgia, you know, and um, it's like at the end of the day, though, that is where your real power lies. I cannot get on the White House lawn. But I can go right down there too. I can go right to the Capitol. I can go right to City Hall. I can even go to the governor's mansion. You know what I mean? And have these conversations and be impactful in my community and talk about what needs to, go, to be done and look at the budgets. Because people don't realize politicians are really just glorified accountants. Their primary job <laughs> is moving around budget. You know what I mean? And allocating funds. So it's like you can really get involved in the allocation of funds in your local municipality. So if you really want change, we got to stop showing up 1 million strong to the federal election and then 25 people to the local election. You know, people need to, we need to teach civics. People are having this great debate about what we need to be teaching in school. We need to teach proper civics. Most people don't realize that the the jury rolls are pulled from the voter rolls. So if you want a fair trial for an Ahmad Aubrey, then you need people who actually represent that community on in the jury, well, how do we get them in the jury? They have to be registered to vote. And so your reg- your vote gives you entree locally into so much more than you realize. And so the way you can make change is just, I don't care about the world. I know the world likes to listen to me, but I don't care about the world. I care about Atlanta, Georgia, because that is where my power lies. That's where I can have impact. I'm right now working on a program to help black farmers. I'm working with I'm working with city council and commissioners to get that work done. I'm going to be using city and, you know, state funds to get that done. I am I'm Microsoft moved into our community. My organization immediately set up a a, a, pro, a a meeting with Microsoft and said, "Okay, you're bringing all these jobs here. Let us show you who are some of the people who need to be trained, who need some of these jobs because we have a wealth gap here in Atlanta." It sounds like we need to model you. We know we can't clone you because science isn't there yet. But how do you create a program in Pittsburgh, a program in Philadelphia, a program uh, in oh, Texas where we need more liberal votes? How do you create programs in those places that get the younger generation involved? I think many people forget that the civil rights movement was really young people, it was young people who were tired of the unfair treatment. 
Today, people, as you said, they want equity. Everybody wants equity. It's gone from equality to equity. How do we take what you're doing and model it so that it can be repeated in other cities and towns across America? I think the first step is all of these organizations who, for the record, before I name them, let me tell you, they're all doing absolutely amazing jobs. But I think that what it is, I think it's time for a real sit-down meeting amongst leadership, the head of the NAACP, the head of the Urban League, organizations like mine, the People's Uprising, all different organization leaders sit down and annually and say, which two main things are we tackling this year? And what universal curricula are we going to use? And what pooled lobbying money are we going to put together to fight these two things? Is it this year have we decided it's voters' rights and food inequity? Great. Let's start working on that. Let's look at the NPUs and realize how we can teach people community by community how to get healthy food in their community. If we can't work it out, one of the things my organization is doing, the People's Uprising, is we, we, we're we hearing a lot of complaints about Black farmers, about how difficult it is for them to get entree into the farmer's market. Then we're looking at the heads, we're talking to the heads of NPU saying what a hard time they are having getting grocery stores in their community. So we thought, okay, our goal this year is to connect the two and how do we do that? Well, we just started on doing farmers markets in those communities with the black farmers and to work with the city to be able to take SNAP benefits, um, to take basically to take food stamps at those events. So now the black farmers have a way to sell their perishables before they go bad. The people in the community are getting healthy food and those in the community who are receiving assistance to get healthy food are still able to go to those farmers markets and get those healthy foods. And so it's like if we have these meetings where the head of the NAACP, the head of the Urban League, the head of all these people are coming together and we're saying this year we're going to talk about food insecurity. TPU, we can stand up and say, this is what we're doing and we're welcome to share our modeling plan for you. We're welcome to show you how we were in community with the MPUs, how we were in community with the farmers, how we worked with the city, how, how we helped to support the mayor who said he would help us with this. I love how practical you are. I was raised on a farm in the Florida Panhandle, and my grandmother used to say, you can only weed the garden one row at a time. And that's what you're doing. You focus on a project. You say, we're going to do this, and we're going to accomplish this. When we get that row done, we move to the next row, because you can't do all of those rows at the same time at all. Kimberly, When I look at you, when I think of the sound of your voice, I think of all the people around the world who not only will benefit from hearing and seeing you, but who will benefit from hearing your passion captured in your book. As you wrote the book and you look back on it, what was one of the most satisfying moments in creating this book for you? I think we live in an echo chamber now where people want to hear voices that say everything they want them to say on brand with their thought process or they're wrong. Um, We also live in this very like fast paced social media concept where every idea has to be completely bite-sized. And I think that's why people connected to my video because it was concise. But what I wanted to do to this book is say that we're looking at too small of a vantage point. I wanted people to make the connections. I wanted to do real critical race theory. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I wanted to do real critical race theory and say, you have to know You have to know the impact of slavery, of Reconstruction, of Jim Crow, of the crack epidemic, of police brutality, and how it impacts every piece of our life. And I just wanted to break it down piece by piece so that people can see it. Because I think when you feed it to people that way, piece by piece, small chunks, bits and bits of connectivity, it nurtures empathy. 
it nurtures an understanding. But the most important thing I, I think it nurtures and what I hope is the outcome of this book is that it nurtures um, a desire to then get up and do something. Because as you said, then people can realize how practical their peace can be. Stop telling people at the pageants to say, I want world peace. Because it seems impractical, it seems unattainable, and it frightens people as it should. But if you stand up and you say, what I want to see is less children go to bed hungry at night, that I can win. And that's how we win. It's your version of Reconstruction 2.0? 2.0. 2.0. One of the best chapters in the book. Because... <laughs> Because that's what's needed. Now, I think moving forward, people who read your book, who see your words, who follow all the other people who you're involved with, all the other organizations that reflecting what you're doing, they can bring about the change. Looking at you fills my heart with hope. Because there are days sometimes when I read the paper, I read the political news, and I thought, oh my God, I thought we were past this, yeah. but somehow it's coming back again. And we need to get practical strategies that will help people see how in their local area, one vote at a time, one issue at a time, they can make a difference in the world that they live in. And that will have a knock on effect to make the whole U.S. a better place to live for everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you so much. It was it's been a joy to talk to you today, really. That was Kimberly Jones, author of How We Can Win. The book is out now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Alvin Hall. Thank you for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.